right, well, Happy New Year. I feel like the year's really been well underway. It's the first Sunday of the new year, but it's, uh, it's the seventh day already. It, uh, work's back, life's back. Uh, but it is our first Sunday of the new year, and hey, we are, uh, we're in our 90th year here at Bethesda. And you know, it's, yeah, June, June marks 90 full years. We'll have our 90th anniversary in June, and I want to invite you right now to mark your calendars for the month of June. Uh, on Sundays, we'll be touching on uh, the legacy and the history of this church, but especially on Sunday, June the 23rd, Sunday, June the 23rd, that is the day we will celebrate our 90th uh, anniversary. We're going to have a special service and then a celebration to follow in our dining rooms. So mark your calendars, please. Uh, make, it a, make it a day that you'll definitely be here. We're letting you know early. Uh, it, it, we're letting you know here on the seventh day of the new year. So uh, it's going to be something that we're super looking forward to. Uh, the, the year has begun. Last Sunday was the New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve, the last Sunday of 2023. And we heard from our student and young adult pastor, Pastor Noah, on this question. How can the church succeed in 2024? And I'm going to follow on that this morning. We'll touch on the same question, and I want to give just a brief little review of last Sunday, if you weren't here. Uh, where did... Uh, Pastor Noah go to answer that question. Well, he went back to the inaugural days of the church, the church universal. He went to Acts chapter 2, and that was the start of the capital C church, uh, the church of Jesus Christ, the new covenant church. We could give it many titles, but it's the one and only church. And in Acts chapter 2, it was the only church. There were no divisions. There were no splits. There were no splinters. There were no schisms. There were no denominations, no divisions. As a matter of fact, we were reminded last week that it was really the opposite. The church was one united body that was in of God and all that he was doing and all that he had done to form this fledgling body called the church and he brought everyone together who was united and devoted to studying and reading the scriptures, praying together, living life together, sharing their possessions, devoted to the apostles' teaching. And these were practical aspects that were touched on about how to succeed as the church. And the church grew and it spread and it developed and the apostles continued to teach and give practical ways to stay united and to reinforce that. Last Sunday, we heard from Romans chapter 12. And I love Romans chapter 12. Romans, uh, that, that letter that Paul wrote to the Romans, the first 11 
chapters are like this theological treatise, but then in chapter 12, it takes this turn, and I call it Paul's Sermon on the Mount. Romans chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, they're full of just practical life application, just like Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Both are filled with just practical ways to live as Christians. And we were exhorted last week to apply Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, to answer the question, how can we succeed as a church in 2024? And all of those practical actions, they were summarized. They were summarized to answer the question, how can we succeed in 2024? They were summarized with this answer, do what the church has done since the church first did it. And that's just a great way to summarize it. I loved how Pastor Noah used that just to, that's, that's the summary, that's the takeaway. And I want this morning to look at a different aspect of that same answer. Do what the church has done since the church first did it. And I preface this by saying, I'm going to share some of the things that I shared on Wednesday. So if you were here on Wednesday, it's a bit of a repeat for you. It's a bit of repetition, but repetition's good. Repetition's good. On Wednesday, we talked about the state of the church. We had our annual state of the church meeting. And some of the things that were talked about, they just align with what it means to be a successful church. And again, about our church, Bethesda, we are an independent church. We're self-governed. We share in this capital C church. We share in the universal church. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who are in the kingdom. They happen to be at different local churches. They might be part of a denomination. And the the capital C church beyond these walls or some that claim to be in it, it can influence us. It, it definitely can. It can influence and impact this local body. And I want to talk about that a little bit this morning. And <clears throat> last week, Pastor Noah touched on it. He touched on a, a, a declaration that was made on December the 18th by the Roman Catholic Church and it was approved by the Pope. Now I know as Protestants, some of us might, there are debates about the standing of the Catholic Church in the universal church and I'm not, I don't wanna debate that this morning. That's not the discussion. I wanna talk about the influence of a body that says we're Christians and they're 1.3 billion members strong. That's a big group. And that group has influence and wields power, and that's the Catholic Church, and it made a uh, papal-approved declaration that was a bit confusing. It was kind of as confusing as it was clear, and the declaration, uh, it's called uh, fiducia supplicans. They love Latin, and uh, that, means, that means supplicating or pleading for trust, or supplicating, pleading for confidence. And the rest of the title of that declaration was on the pastoral meaning of blessings. So it's pleading for trust on the pastoral meaning of blessings. 
It's eight pages. It's an eight-page declaration about blessings. And the Pope formally approved it, and it's about Catholic priests blessing same-sex couples. And there were conditions in it. I, I don't know if you read it. I did my best to read the whole thing, and... Yeah, it was full of lots of conditions and the blessings were not to be in a liturgical or ritualized setting. And so in a sense, they were supposed to be informal blessings, but blessings nonetheless. And even with all those conditions, many, many, in the, and even in the Catholic Church, say that this is tacitly approving same-sex marriages. And for certain, that's the way many have interpreted it. And received it, and even many in the, the Catholic uh, faith, especially in many of the African nations and Eastern Europe, yeah, they're just like, this is what's going on. That's what they're saying. Then on January 4th, this past Thursday, it was after our Wednesday night, on Thursday, the Catholic Church published a five-page clarification of the eight-page declaration. And the clarification, the consensus is, and again, you can read the clarification. It, in essence, the consensus is it doubles down. It doubles down on the original declaration. And so the declaration, it's, it technically says, you know, we don't, we're not endorsing, you know, same-sex marriage. But again, many in Catholicism say that's absolutely what it does. And if, if it isn't, it's a stepping stone. It's progressing towards the church officially having these weddings. So uh, I want to share with you a little of the language of the declaration just so uh, you hear it. And you know, I'm, just, I'm, I'm not trying to peel it all out of context. So the, here's a part that's just, when it's talking about blessings in general, it says, when one asks for a blessing... One is expressing a petition for God's assistance, a plea to live better, and confidence in a father who can help us live better. This confidence is the sole path that leads us to the love that grants everything. With confidence, the wellspring of grace overflows into our lives. It is most fitting then that we should place heartfelt trust, not in ourselves, but in the infinite mercy of a God who loves us unconditionally. Under, uh, th then it, it leads into the final section, which is uh, headed blessings of couples in irregular situations and couples of the same sex. And under that it states, God never turns away anyone who approaches him. So that's the directive. There, it's the directive. And it's not the whole thing. Again, it's eight pages. But it's the directive that doesn't officially bless this, uh, the, these, these types of unions. But it really does. It does. And it, it's founded on this. Unconditional love and acceptance. And God never turns away anyone. And that sounds wonderful, but I wonder how do you reconcile God never turns away anyone? How is that reconciled with 
the words of Jesus. Jesus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount, which was all this practical life application, at the end, Jesus said, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on and says, they will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do miracles in your name? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So I, I, I struggle with God never turns away anyone. It's, it's, and we need to reconcile these things with Scripture. And then when it comes to this word unconditional, unconditional love. Unconditional is not a biblical word. Now, I know we can make a case for unconditional love, and I don't want you to take me wrong this morning. The Word of God, the, the most oft-quoted New Testament verse, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. God so loved the world. He gave his Son for the whole world. Well, it seems no condition there. And I understand that. I know that we could talk about that. But I would rather use biblical terms. That's all. I just would rather use what the Bible describes as God's love. And how does the Bible describe God's love? Well, the Bible used terms like God's love is great. He has great love. He has unfailing love we read about the steadfast love of the lord we read that god's love is eternal everlasting love a love that endures forever we can get into the psalms and they'll repeat that his love endures forever his love endures forever he is rich in love he is abounding in love and i'd rather use those big biblical descriptions of God's love instead of this unconditional love. And why is that? Because unconditional, it conveys this. No condition. And that's what the word means. No condition. Anything goes. And indeed, that is the wording in the Catholic Declaration. It states, God's unconditional love grants everything. That's the terminology. Grants everything. And he accepts it all. He turns away no one. Anyone who approaches him. This is a declaration. It's based on love and acceptance. And God never turns away anyone. And that's the current news in the Catholic Church. And it's causing a big stir. Now what about some of the other big churches? If we're talking about how the church might succeed, what's happening in other churches. Well, the, the, the Methodist church, it's been slowly, painfully falling apart for a few years since 2019. The United Methodists have been wrestling and grappling with this exact same issue. And that denomination is, is peeling apart. In 2019, the United Methodists, they opened the door to the whole denomination, said, if you're a local church, you want to get out, you can. 
you can keep your property and your, your buildings and such. And they, they'd have to work out arrangements. But they offered this and they made this way. And January the 31st, 2023, just last Sunday, that was the last day. That was their last day. And that's why this has been in the news. It was the last day for the, the Methodist congregations to decide, are we going to remain with the United Methodists or are we out? And why is this? Why, are, why the split? Why the problem? CBS News reported this just in December. And uh, this was an article that I read. It says, Bishop Karen Oliveto sees her consecration in 2016 as a breaking point for some of the thousands of people who have made the once unthinkable decision to leave the United Methodist Church. Oliveto is the church's first openly gay bishop and oversees congregations in Colorado, Montana, Utah, Wyoming, and one in Idaho. Her service defies longstanding rules in the denomination. Disregard for those church laws is fueling divisions that have already led to the exodus of about 20% of the United Methodist Church congregations across the U.S. since disaffiliation began in 2019. People are upset at me for living openly in love and joy, said Olivetto. How can we say no to love and joy as a church? The church implores families and churches not to reject or condemn lesbian and gay members and friends. But that falls short. That is not acceptance, Olivetto said. So, like the Catholics uh, that say it's not official. The Methodists, they say it's not official, but it's official. And what's it all based on? It's all based on love and acceptance. And uh, other big denominations have gone through this. The Evangelical Church uh, in America, the Evangelical Lutheran Church, I should say, in America, the ELCA, they went through this 15 years ago. The Presbyterian Church USA, 10 years ago, they've split. And I will say, this is a war. This is a war, and it's a war being waged for the soul of the church. And it's all sexually centric. All the sexual and gender stuff, and it's disguised. There is a disguise here. And the disguise is love and acceptance. And these are big, huge, influential church bodies that have been compromised by the culture. And they have confused something. They have confused the love of God with approving what God has plainly called sin. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean we don't advocate the love of God? Of course we advocate for the love of God, the unfailing love of God. We advocate for the great love of God, the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases. Of course we advocate for that. And we're supposed to love others. We're called to love others and consider the least of, of our brothers and sisters. And we're supposed to be charitable and good Samaritans. And welcome everyone. Yes. Yes. Welcome anyone. Anyone who comes in this church, welcome them. Open your arms to them. Invite them in to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, the saving gospel, to hear about the steadfast love of the Lord. I mean, that's what we're supposed to do. That is the love we're supposed to emulate. And I said this last year. I said this last year at the beginning of the year, and I'll say it again. I'm convinced that the ills of this world 
the natural world that bear out in all the pervasive and evil and wickedness that abounds, it is fundamentally a spiritual problem. Spiritual problems that manifest in the natural world and, they, and, and cause all kinds of problems in people's lives. It's a spiritual problem. In a word, it's called sin. You know, when it comes to the natural world, Jesus helped out so many, so many. A woman come to him. Actually, she didn't come to him. She was dragged to him. It wasn't even her, uh, her volition. She was brought to him caught in the act of adultery. He kept her from being stoned. He helped her from being harmed. He loved her that much. And he said these words, go and sin no more. That's what he said. There was a man lame for 38 years at the pool of Bethesda. Jesus healed him. When he saw that man again, what did he say to him? Stop sinning, lest something worse befalls you. Jesus didn't compromise. Now these mainline churches, they have substituted the heart of man for the heart of God. That's what they've done. And what is man's heart? It's deceitful and it's wicked, desperately wicked. And it's that heart, the heart of a natural man. It's the heart of man that has a perverted and adulterated the pure heart of God. And it's presented God's heart as without condition. And God's heart is granting everything. Oh, God has no conditions on you. No, his love accepts you as you are. It grants you everything. Well, that means you don't have to do a thing. We might as well fold up our Bibles and go home because it means everyone, everyone's, we've all got the same destination. That is the claim. It's not the heart of God. It is not the heart of God. What is the heart of God? The heart of God suffers none to be lost. The heart of God beckons the human heart to turn to him in repentance, humble repentance. That is the cure. That is a cure. That is a spiritual cure to the problem that's manifest in evil in the world. I'll give you an example. King David. King David. Where the, the book of Acts says he is a man after God's own heart. King David committed adultery with the wife of a man who was serving him. A man serving in his army. King David took that man's wife and committed adultery with her. She became pregnant. What did David do? He tried to cover up that sin. He tried to hide it. And that didn't work. So what did he do? He had that man killed. He murdered him. And then what did he do? He took the widow as his very own wife. And he got on with life as if nothing happened. But a day came, a day came where his eyes were opened and he saw his dreadful sin. And I want to share with you how he responded. This is how he responded, Psalm 51. I'll read to you a few verses from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. 
not unconditional. Have mercy on me, God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. What was the cure for David's sin? The cure was not to come to God expecting to be accepted as he was. The cure for David was not to come to God expecting that his unholy union would be blessed. The cure for David was not to come to God expecting unconditional love that never turns away anyone who approaches him and grants everything. No. The cure for David was to turn to God in repentance, humble repentance with a broken and a contrite heart and humility confessing. Confessing his sin, my sins and my transgressions, they're always before me. And what did he do? He appealed to God's unfailing love. If I should ever use the word never, if I'm, gonna, if I'm going to employ the absolute term never, never doesn't allow anything except never. That's it. If I'm going to say God never turns away anyone who approaches him, I'm going to add something. God will never turn away anyone who approaches him with a broken and contrite heart. This is what the word of God is telling us. There's a war being waged for the soul of the church and it's, it's based on love and acceptance. And for the church to succeed in 2024 and beyond, we cannot, we must not, it can never happen. We can never allow the heart of man to be substituted for the heart of God and define God's heart. And what does that mean? That means we do precisely what we were told last week. We do what the church has done since the fir church first did it. We love, we accept. Yes, we do. We love and we accept. We love and we accept as Jesus loved and accepted. Now, the world's changed since the first century. That's for sure. We're 2,000 years since the, the, the beginning of the fledgling church and all that occurred in that first century and the church formed and developed and spread. 2,000 years, yeah, things have changed. But Jesus hasn't changed. The word of God has not changed. The message has not changed. And we can never, ever stray from the message. We can never stray from God's truth. And my heart is that we get passionate about that. My heart is that to be a successful church, that we get, we, we get passionate about the love that Jesus has in his heart to, to, to share the good news of Jesus Christ, that God's love is boundless, that, that it's unfailing, and it's not unconditional, accepting everything. You know, we should be willing to take on those who would compromise the word of God and say such things, but not legalistically. We don't need to get legalistic about that. 
we don't have to do this in a law-oriented, don't-do-don't-do way. The law came through Moses' grace and truth through Jesus Christ. And the love of Jesus was expressed in his kindness and his compassion, his welcoming open arms to say, come on, come on. But he was uncompromising. He preached, repent, turn away from sin, go, sin no more. Lest something worse befalls you. So we shouldn't fear calling sin, sin. But we should love and accept with a zeal that reflects the heart of God, the compassion of Jesus. I share with you an example to help us. The word of God to, to help us in this, to have this, this zeal. And it's Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Again, the church is it's, it's still new here. This is, this is not 30-some years maybe into the church. And he wrote, for Christ's love compels us. Chapter 5, verse 14. For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled himself through Jesus, through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is beautiful, beautiful. You can't get any better than this. The good news can't be any better than this, that Jesus died for all of us and we can be reconciled unto God. If we are all in in, if we're all in it and we want to have the church succeed, not just in 2024, but well beyond. Let's be a church that's compelled by Christ's love, as Paul wrote, be compelled by the love of Jesus, the true love of Jesus Christ, not a man-made definition of the love of God. We cannot fall prey to this false definition of what love is. And this is my appeal to you. Be compelled by Christ's love to add to the kingdom and strengthen the church. Be compelled to be ambassadors. God making his gospel appeal through you. An appeal that tells others you can be reconciled to God Almighty, your creator. You can be a new creation. And how can that be? How can you be a new creation? The unfailing, eternal, abounding love of Jesus, he offers a way to that. He offers a way to the righteousness of God to be that. His love is so rich. His love is so great. His love is so steadfast that he has become sin for us. That is an amazing thing. He took what we deserved, the punishment for our sin 
We offer that and just say, will you turn to him with a broken and contrite heart? That's the true love of Jesus. That is the true love of Jesus to be broadcast by his ambassadors. And I fear some might have gotten complacent in that. Or even co-opted, co-opted by this insidious message that God's unconditional love accepts and grants everything. It sounds so good. It sounds so warm and fuzzy. He never turns away anyone. Well, let's latch on to that. Don't latch on to the false idea of God's love. It's an insidious, it's an insidious uh, disguise of what God's love truly is. And we can't be complacent and let that happen. And we can't be co-opted by it. But be compelled. Be compelled by Christ's love and convinced, convinced that he died for all. Let's do that. And think about that now as we just sit down at the communion table of our Lord. Remember these words that, that Jesus uh, or that Jesus did. It's described for us by Paul where he said, he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Jesus died for us. And let that love, that unfailing love, compel us and convince us that we wouldn't be complacent or be co-opted. Our communion's open to all. It's open to all who have come to Christ. And we just ask, if you have a little child, don't put something on them that they can't really yet understand. But pre prepare your bread and hold it. We're gonna bless it together and eat it together and the same with the cup. Before we do, though, let's take a minute to look inside our own hearts. You know, ask ourselves if... of this has occurred in our hearts that we've been kind of taken in by these these messages that pervert the true love of God or let's look at our heart about anything that would keep us from discerning the body of Christ because the word of God says the apostle Paul teaching about this he said i received from the lord what i also passed on to you the lord jesus on the night he was betrayed he took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and he said this is my body which is for you why because he's going to die for all do this in remembrance of me in the same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup proclaim the Lord's death until he comes so then whoever eats or drinks of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord we don't want to do that so what's the what's the caution what's the advice everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat and drink from the cup for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves that's why many of among you are weak and sick and a number of you sleep but if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves we 
would not come under such judgment. So let's take that to heart and look inside before we have this bread and drink this cup and just examine yourselves. This is a great, wonderful door of opportunity open to us by the word of God. You know, Cameron mentioned something earlier at the uh, start of our service about our name. He said, he, he alluded to us receiving a new name as we come to Christ. And it's not insignificant, and neither is this idea of blessing. I, I mentioned this document that the, the Catholic Church wrote. Yeah, they spent a great deal of time mentioning the significance of blessing, and it is significant. And what, what we just sung is a blessing from the Old Testament. It's Numbers chapter 6. And God came to Moses, and he said, Moses, give this to Aaron and his sons to bless the people. And it was the words that we just sung, and it's significant. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you peace. But let me share with you the last verse of Numbers chapter 6, right after that blessing. God's word to Moses about Aaron and his sons. He said, tell them this is the blessing so they will put my name on the Israelites and I'll bless them. I want to leave here today offering you that same blessing. But know that you leave, you leave with the name of Jesus on you. And that's not insignificant. It's not. And so leave with that blessing and take to heart the word that we have heard this morning about being his ambassadors, being compelled, convinced, not co-opted and complacent. Raise your hands for the blessing. Father, bless your people. Bless them and keep them. Make your face to shine upon them. Be gracious to them. Lift up your smiling countenance upon them grant them peace. And God, may they receive, as your word says, your name on them. They've got it. May they leave here knowing they've got the name of Christ on them. God, and you would grant them peace that passes understanding to keep their heart and mind and soul for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.